James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your garments have rotted. I'm sorry, your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the cry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Those are some scathing words, aren't they? I was hoping she'd just kind of take it from there and I could sit back and listen. But this is one of the things that I think is important with how we look at Scripture. Because if we were going to pick and choose only the easy passages, we would skip this one. These are some hard words. And if you listen to what James is seeing, saying, it, it does seem like he's ramping up his rebuke. His, his tone in what Monica just read is so sharp. In fact, it caused me to, to wonder this week, is, is he speaking to the same audience here? I mean, who's the intended target of this passionate rebuke? Some scholars have looked at this passage and have decided, well, it must be unbelievers. Because his tone is so sharp. James doesn't refer to them as brethren as he has up until this point all throughout the letter. So, so perhaps these are unbelievers and, and that's why there's such strong words of, of judgment and, and rebuke. Not comfort and hope. Others look at the passage and say, well that doesn't make sense. For James to be speaking to unbelievers, but he's been talking to Christians the entire time. So maybe these are Christians whose lives really don't look all that different than the world around them. He's ramping up his rebuke against worldly lifestyles that are evident in the life of the church. And he's using such strong words because he just wants to get their attention. Well, I thought long and hard about this debate this week, and here's my conclusion. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the solution is the same. Repent. Whether he's speaking to an unbeliever who does not know God, repent. Or a believer who does know God but is living like he doesn't, repent. James makes his case as he would in a courtroom. He brings forth a condemnation. He calls forth witnesses. And then he delivers a judgment. And actually, it's not his judgment at all. It's the judgment of God against unrepentant sin. There is a theme that courses throughout the letter of James, and it's a call to humble surrender. God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. So repent. Humble yourselves. 
in the presence of God and He will exalt you. Before we look at His Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look at what is a strong passage, help us not miss the point. Help us to see your heart in the midst of the rebuke. Help us to see your love in the midst of the sharp tone. Lord, help us understand your desire for none to perish, but all to come to eternal life. And help us live a life that gives glory and honor to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as you look at your bullets, and I've kind of given you an outline, and I've done a little bit more work this week on what that outline looks like, because I think this is an important passage, and it needs some good explanation, so here's my effort to do so. When James brings his condemnation, he really does it in three different areas. Selfish hoarding, selfish relationships, and selfish indulgence. Okay, let's look at those together. Chapter 5 of James, verse 2, listen. To what he says, your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. What caught my attention when I first read this passage was all the past tense verbs. Your riches have rotted. Your clothes have already been eaten by moths. Your gold and silver, it's rusted. But that's what happens when we store things away, right? I mean, how many times have you put something in the attic to go retrieve it some years later and recognize it doesn't quite look the same, does it? Those clothes are a little more tattered than you last remembered. That lampshade has become brittle. The metal has rusted. Well, decay is inevitable. Or things we store away and do not use. These are people who are hoarding their wealth and it's wasting away. It, it loses its value when it's not being used. It has no benefit when it sits in your bank. It reminds me of a true story of a woman by the name of Bertha Adams. She died of malnutrition weighing only 50 pounds at the time of her death. She was well known throughout her neighborhood because she was always begging for food. She wore clothes from the Salvation Army, and her house was a hoarding nightmare. I mean, she never threw anything away. Well, you would think that she died a penniless recluse. That wasn't the case. Upon going through her estate, they found that she had two safety deposit boxes at the bank, one of them filled with 700 AT&T stock certificates, along with $200,000 in cash. The other one, $600,000 in cash. She was a multimillionaire, but her wealth did her no good sitting inside the bank. James is, is condemning a pattern of selfish hoarding for the purpose of selfish gain. It goes back to chapter 2 where he's uh, condemning them for their favoritism towards the rich man and all his fine clothing, but their negligence to the poor man and his dirty clothes. Their wealth was a reflection of their status. The more they had, the more important they were in that society, and ours as well. 
their identity was based on what they owned. They lived lavishly, gave sparingly. Let me be clear here to say that, that James is not saying that it is a sin to have a savings account. Okay, That's not the point. What he's saying is it is a sin to have more that you need while ignoring the needs of others. That's a sin. This is not an emergency fund in case something unexpected comes up. This is enough to retire in luxury so you don't have to change your lifestyle. It's prioritizing financial security over faithful obedience. Serving out of comfort in order to avoid sacrifice. And if that's how you view money, it's also how you'll view people. Look at how he continues in verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborer who mowed your fields, of which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the, Lord, the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Overvaluing wealth always leads to undervaluing people. Overvaluing wealth always leads to undervaluing people. James describes people, these servants, who are faithfully doing their job. But somehow their payment was adjusted, being different than what they were promised. Maybe these landowners found a reason to withhold some of their money. They look out into the field and say, I noticed you missed a spot back there. You didn't quite get that corner. And there are some areas where you didn't harvest all the grain. I'll just adjust your payment accordingly. See, their primary concern was not in the well-being of the worker. It was maximizing their wealth. After all, it's harvest time, which means they had grain stored in the barn for the entire year while these workers lived hand to mouth, which means when they don't get paid, they don't eat. And so Jesus uh, tells us, or the, the passage tells us that God hears the cry of the worker, and I believe that's because they're calling out. They're, they're praying to God in their time of need. Those who have needs look to God. Those who have an abundance look the other way. When we're not humble before God, we become prideful towards others. Overlooking needs in order to maximize profit. Because the more you value wealth, the less you value people. Look at how he continues in verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, led a life of wanton pleasure. To live luxuriously is more literally translated to live delicately. It's the idea of kind of a, a soft and pampered life. It's a purposeful decision to avoid hard things. Now, as I mentioned, we were in Dallas this past week for Frank's funeral, and I have a confession to make. When I drive in Dallas, I take the expressway. I pay the extra money to avoid all the traffic because I hate driving in Dallas. I want the easy way in, and I want the easy way out, okay? Well, in a very similar way, James is condemning those who use their money to make life easy. It's a life that avoids sacrifice in order to preserve comfort. I'll have a whole lot less maintenance if I just buy a new car. <laughs> Why serve at the soup kitchen if you can just give a donation? 
Sure, I'll serve in ministry just as long as I don't have to adjust my lifestyle. We've got a pretty comfortable pattern going on, and I really don't want to mess that up. But it's not always an issue of money. See, we can avoid the hard things by avoiding something hard like reconciliation. Why go through the pain of restoring a relationship if you can just walk away? Living a life of wanton pleasure is a life that puts my needs first before the needs of someone else. It's a decision to avoid sacrifice, take the easy road, and to avoid the the hard things in life. We see that with, with selfish hoarding. We see it in selfish relationships. We see it in selfish indulgence. And so as you listen to this, you, you know these are some strong indictments, right? And so James is going to now call forth his witnesses to help support those indictments. The, the first two are fairly straightforward. The witness for their accumulated wealth is obvious. We kind of saw this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the end of chapter 4 where it talks about their plans, right? We're going to go to such and such place. We're going to do such and such business. And we're going to make a certain amount of profit. The only problem was their plan didn't include God. It was a plan that was motivated by pride. Why? Because profit was their primary goal. God was only important as it related to their success. These were Christians doing business, but make no mistake, this is not a Christian business. Because what they did for God was ultimately based on what God did for them. Serving out of surplus instead of sacrifice. But all this accumulated wealth has now become a witness against them. They were seeking an abundance in what James refers to as the last days. Now, we need to understand that from a biblical perspective, the last days is the time period in between the first and second coming of Christ. So when you hear that phrase in Scripture, that's what it's referring to. What that also tells us that we too are living in the last days, that time between the the first and the second coming of Christ. They're called the last days because when Christ returns, there are no second chances. The last days are our last chance to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ alone. And so why be so focused on life in this world if this world is passing away? Selfish gain always distracts us from an eternal perspective. Accumulated wealth is a witness against them. And so are the prayers of the needy. God hears the prayers of the needy and he sees the life of the wealthy. See, he knows and is fully aware when we withhold what we should freely give. That's true whether we know of a specific need or not. I want you to hear that because it's important. It's true whether we know of a specific need or not. We can't absolve ourselves by saying, gosh, if I would have just known, I would have done something. I think that may be one of the reasons the Bible calls us to regularly tithe.
tithe our money. If we only give, when we're presented with a specific need, two things happen. One, we overlook other needs that may not be known. And two, we begin to think that we are the one who solved the problem. I used my resources to rescue somebody from a hard place. I leveraged my influence to advance the work of ministry. But God does not need our resources, nor does he need our influence. He needs our heart. See, by giving regularly, we entrust our resources to God. We let him determine how they're used. Instead of feeling good about what we've done, we praise God for what he's accomplished. It keeps our heart in check. So James is called the the witness of accumulated wealth, the the prayers of the needy. And then he calls the righteous who are condemned. Look at verse 6. He says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. See, those who have an abundance are taking advantage of those who have a need. And I believe the righteous don't resist because they can't. The wealthy have all the resources. They possess all the influence. And they're using it to gain an advantage. Now, like we talked about in chapter 4, I don't believe that we have an issue of, of rampant homicide going on in the early church. Instead, I believe what James is referring to here is the, the murder that is caused when we bring harm to those who are otherwise helpless. Instead of surrendering power for the good of someone else, we use our power to gain an advantage over them. This can be intentional or it can be done in negligence. But again, either way, we're responsible. Whether we know of the need or not, whether it's intentional or negligent, doesn't matter. We're still responsible. Personally, I think it has more to do with negligence. Because I think their friendliness with the world has caused them to be blind to the needs of others. They're so focused on themselves, they can't see beyond that. They're doing harm not because of a specific action, but because of the absence of compassion. They're so distracted by a worldly lifestyle that they don't see the needs of those around them. He's brought a condemnation called forth his witnesses, and now he delivers the judgment, and it's strong. Listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now, what I want you to know on the front end is each of these pronouncements that James makes is an echo of the Old Testament prophets. It may sound strange to us, but it would have been very familiar to them. Now, I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen to two examples. I'm going to give you one from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, one from Ezekiel. And I want you to listen to their words and their similarity to what James just said. So here is Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will ride like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces 
a flame. Now listen to Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 2 and 3. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, weep, alas for the day. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. What we know throughout Scripture is that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. And in the context of the New Testament, the day of the Lord marks the end of the last days. It is both a day of doom and a day of deliverance. When you see the Old Testament prophets speaking to this, they're speaking both to their enemies and to their own people. It's a day of doom for the unrepentant. It's a day of deliverance for the righteous. That same message carries over into the New Testament. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder so that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Because this is what I'm just reading to you. By the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your apostles. These are things that you've heard before. And listen to what he says. Know this, first of all. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Saying, where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all continues as, as it was from the beginning of creation. But then in verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and in hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed, the burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I believe what Peter is proclaiming is the very same thing in the heart of James as he writes this letter. He's calling believers who are living with worldly lives to remember what is coming. Eugene Peterson describes it this way. He says, since everything here today might well be gone tomorrow, do you see how essential it is to live a holy life? Daily expect the day of God, eager for its arrival. But I would add to that and say we're only eager for its arrival if that's where we've set our hope. We set our hope to the coming of Christ only when Christ is our only hope. When worldly possessions, reputation, all those things are removed, and we're not disappointed. Because seeing Jesus is what we've been living for all along. Look at James chapter 5, verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and you will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. The judgment of God is like a refining fire. It will burn away all that has no eternal value. Jesus said, Woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your comfort. In other words, our comfort in the coming of Christ is not in what we possess. Instead, it's in where we invest. And there's a difference. See, worldly treasure has no eternal value, but people do. Our accomplishments and accolades won't carry over, but our worth in Christ will. Everyone will give an account. And our greatest reward will be when we hear our Savior say, Well done, good and faithful servant. See, Jesus will not be looking at our life to see what we've accumulated or what we've accomplished. He will be looking at where we invested and ways in which we serve the needs of others is more important than our own. It will have a whole lot more to do with what we've given up than anything we've gained. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a lifestyle of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That phrase, the day of slaughter, is one in which Jeremiah spoke several times. If you were to look at the prophet Jeremiah, you would see that phrase. Let me give you one of those examples. This is in chapter 25, verse 34 of Jeremiah. He says, Wail, you shepherds, and cry. Wallow in ashes, you masters of the flock. For the day of your slaughter and your dispersions have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. What I believe is significant about what Jeremiah is speaking to is he's speaking to shepherds. He's speaking to those who lead and are being held accountable for how they have led. Did they lead people to Christ or did they distract them from Christ? But all of the prophetic language that James is using from all of these passages is pointing to one single event. It is pointing to the return of Christ, a day of reckoning. And he's calling us, he's calling all of us to examine our life and to ask ourselves, is what is important to me now, will it be important to me then? Is what is important to me now be important to me then? I think one of the challenging things about a passage like this is, Okay, how do we respond? Because I think if we're honest, we all feel the sting of this rebuke, whether we're wealthy or not. Because I bet every single one of us have found ourselves caught up in worldly lifestyles to the point that we've missed out on seeing where God is at work around us. So how do we respond? I believe the Lord helped answer that question for me as I struggled with it this week. Just through my normal daily readings as I ran across Some of the words of John the Baptist. And what struck me is that John the Baptist is preaching very much the same message as James is here. What was his message? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He was speaking about the first coming of Christ. Prepare your hearts for that day. And I believe James is doing the same thing about the second coming. With the same message of repent. And prepare your heart for that day. If you want to, turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. 
Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We're of Abraham. He was our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, brethren, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. James is talking about judgment. I think he's referring to the very same, or John is talking about judgment. He's referring to the same thing that James has been. This day of wrath, this day of judgment. He's warning the Israelites that they don't, uh, they're not absolved from that judgment simply because they're children of Abraham. They're not saved by their lineage. They're saved by their faith. As important as the root is, the fruit is what reveals where you're connected. The root is important, but the fruit is the evidence of where you're connected. And specifically, he's referring to the fruit of repentance. Look at how he continues in verse 10. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, well, then what should we do? And to me, I read this passage, and I thought, that's what I'm asking when I read James. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? Listen to what he says. And he answered them and said, let the man who has two tunics share with he who has none. And let him who has no food or has food do likewise. Some of the tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said, teacher, what should we do? He said, collect no more than you have in order to do so. And some of the soldiers were questioning him, saying, well, what about us? What do we do? And he said to them, do not take money from, away, from anyone by force or accuse them falsely. Be content with your wages. Luke highlights really three groups of people in Jesus' response to what they are to do, or John's response to what they are to do. The first is kind of a general population. They, they say, what are we supposed to do? And he says, well, if you have two tunics and you see someone who has none, then give them one of yours. His point is, care enough to notice, love enough to give. That's a good application. Care enough to notice. Love enough to give. Then the tax collectors step forward. and they, These are, are people of influence in that society. They had a, a lot of influence because of their job. They really had power over people. And so they ask, hey, what do we do? He says, don't use your position to maximize your profit. Care more about what others need than what you might want. That's a good application. Care more about what others need than about what you might want. Soldiers step forward. These are people of great power in that culture. They ask, what are we supposed to do? Jesus or John responds and says, don't abuse your authority. Instead of looking for ways to condemn, find ways to protect. Encourage instead of criticize. I think what John is trying to describe for them are the evidences of the fruit of repentance. It's very much what Micah says, right? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. What am I supposed to do? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly 
with your God. That's what we need to do. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So repent. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. I'm going to leave you with a lesson from Don's dad that I learned this past week that relates to our passage this morning. What I learned is that when Frank would travel, he would never take the interstates. He said that all the back roads are where all the interesting things are. (laughs) And he would enjoy the journey as much as he would the actual destination. In fact, the joy of the destination was enhanced by the journey along the way. In the very same way. The joy of seeing Christ is enhanced by a life that is lived for Christ. A life that finds peace in the midst of crisis. That finds comfort in the midst of threat. Hope in the midst of loss. Healing in the midst of hurt. Seeing Jesus and all the little moments that life has to offer enhances the worship of that day when we see Him face to face. Don't miss the little moments because they matter in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time this morning and for for the rebuke. Sometimes we need to just kind of be shaken a little to be reminded of how easy it is to be distracted by the world around us and miss out on what's most important from a kingdom perspective. Father, we can be so caught up in our own lives and the comfort of the security and the pattern and the practice that we have that we don't want to go outside of that in order to care for the needs of others is more important than our own. Lord, forgive us. And thank you for your grace. I think the reminder is an evidence of your grace. You don't leave us to ourselves, but you'd help us understand where we might fall short. And you speak of your forgiveness and grace that helps us renew our commitment to set our minds on what's most important to draw near to you and know that you will always draw near to us father i do pray for each and every one of us that the joy of seeing you face to face in that day when you will return will be enhanced by a life that is lived for you moment by moment each and every day until you come May we be that kind of people.